Hey, pull up a chair. Attacks on Tap with David Axelrod and Mike Murphy. All right, X, hold the presses. Tom Steyer, the $100 million man, at least that's what he says he'll spend, has jumped into the race. We all know him from those impeachment ads. What do you think? Does it really mean anything to the big players, or is he going to be a sidebar candidate with a lot of money to spend? Really hard for me to say. I was, you know, skeptical when he started running impeachment ads that he was the star of uh, early in the Trump administration, and he ran them straight through, spent tens and tens and tens of millions of dollars on those, built a a, a list of, of uh, for impeachment of, you know, six, seven million people. I don't know if that's transferable uh, to him now. Uh, you know, it's hard to see where he plays in this, but $100 million is $100 million. And, um, you know, he is, he is poaching on the turf of some others. He comes from the left. Uh, so we'll see what kind of impact he has. Yeah, I think he might be able to hurt people with that money. We'll see what he can do for himself. I, Who do you I think he's going to hurt? The, where, do you, where do you think he'll hurt? Well, I worry a little bit that with a bunch of consultants on the payroll and $100 million saying, well, for you to go up, they got to go down. And he might start poking at people. And, you know, there's just kind of a, a toddler with a machine gun risk, I think, in a big field when you have somebody trying to stand out who doesn't have a natural base because they're all running as green candidates. I, I don't know his way in other than spending a lot of money. And uh, that, as we all know, is not always the, the big deal. But if you look at the normal finance rules. In the FEC report world, we're getting those second quarter numbers in, which is a x-ray of what they're raising. And I think there's a pretty clear winner, don't you? I bet we agree. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there, there are really a couple of winners. One is uh, Mayor Pete, uh, Pete Buttigieg, who, who raised uh, $25 million, which was a big number. We'll talk about yep. that uh, a little bit later. Uh, but the one that really caught my eye was Elizabeth Warren. Joe Biden raised twenty one. And a half million dollars, a lot of money. That was expected. People had questions about Warren because she didn't do well in the first quarter. Uh, she uh, And this quarter, she raised $19 million. And the thing that makes that noteworthy is she's doing it all online. She's not doing fundraisers. She's said that she finds those fundraisers uh, corrupting to hang with wealthy people. And she'd rather spend money with uh, rank-and-file uh, voters. Uh, and there was a lot of questions as to whether she could pull this off. Well, she did it. 80% of them new donors, which means uh, she's expanding her base. These are renewable because they're small donors. They can give again and again. And it means that she's going to be fully funded uh, for, uh, you know, in the near term and, and, and maybe the long term in this campaign. It's a big, big thing. Yeah, you got to give her credit for it. They claim 80% new donors there. And, you know, Washington's been down on her from the beginning. But I think you and I have both been talking about her message does resonate. And this is proof of that, that she's growing with the smaller donors. She also needs the money because she has a big burn rate. And she's built probably the strongest early organization in Iowa. So you, you got to give her, I think, the FEC report win. I give a bronze to Bernie, who did $18 million the second time. He did $18 million in the first yeah, But you quarter. know what? On that, on that point... Uh, the fact that she outraised Bernie—I mean, Bernie was the unchallenged uh, yeah. uh, fundraising leader of the left. He was the guy uh, with the big digital footprint. He still has way more donors than anyone else. But the fact that Elizabeth Warren outraised him this quarter uh, is just one more uh, indication that she may be supplanting him as the candidate of the left in this campaign. 
I would love to look at the actual numbers and see the overlap of how many people are Warren donors who are previous or current Bernie donors, because we could be seeing the grassroots kind of creep over from one candidate to the other. I, I will give my demerit to uh, Kamala only because her $12 million was probably under $10 million before the debate. So she was about to have a, a medium, mediocre report. Now, my guess is she can get the momentum going again. And of course, like always, the big tell are the people who won't tell you till the very last minute what their number is because it's never a good one. And I smell a little uh, press harpoon coming for Beto O'Rourke because he's a uh, another candidate with a big fundraising base that my guess underperformed and his report will be seen in the media as more evidence of a decline. Yeah, one of the reasons that he was highly touted as a candidate was he raised $80 million in that Senate race uh, against Ted Cruz. And uh, he didn't have a good debate performance. Uh, and, uh, you know, so th- there, there are going to be questions, uh, which may be why they haven't released their number yet. And we haven't heard from some of the smaller candidates, Corey or Amy. We're see they're all going to claim a surge in the last uh, 10 days. But increasingly, there's a money gap here between the big players and the rest. So Biden, he's got some money and he was heading to South Carolina for a little relaunch. We, he got into a bind that we've talked about uh, relative to his comments about working with segregationists. It was a big to do uh, in the debate. He was defiant. Uh, in the face of those attacks and subsequent in subsequent interviews that he he did, and then uh, this weekend he delivered a full throated apology in South Carolina, and we can I think we've got a bit of it here. Now was I wrong a few weeks ago to somehow give the impression to people that I was praising those men who I successfully opposed time and again? Well, yes, I was. I regret it. And I'm sorry for any of the pain or misconception they may have caused anybody. So you heard the applause in the background, obviously popular for him to say what he said in South Carolina, where he absolutely needs to retain some of that African-American vote with which he's been doing very well until that debate. Uh, But the question is, why, why, once again, did it take him so long to land where he was going to land? Yeah, it wasn't a hard one to figure out, and you wonder if they have a rapid response department there, because he reminds me of the the senior driver we all love doing 45 in the fast lane. You know, there's just no snap to it, which gets to that whole kind of age, does Joe still have the fastball, can he beat a guy like Trump? So it was he was lurching in the right direction, but as you say, it was uh, it was literally done at Jurassic speed, which is which is a problem. And then, you know, Kamala gave him an opening on busing when she kind of flopped back to a position similar to the one that he's defending, not to ban it uh, federally. And I think he could have wheeled and engaged her again and maybe won the second one to show some feistiness. But there's none of that agility, uh, at least so far in the Biden world. And I think it's driven by Joe. I think in fairness to her, her position was that, um, and and they are generally in the same place, that this should be an option, that it should be available locally, but not ordained uh, federally. Then she had another issue. Um, and, you know, this is the part. Kamala Harris is a very, she has a lot of potential as a candidate. There's a, there are a lot of people who are rooting for her to be the candidate they hope she will be. And she has a problem um, sort of with consistency. And, uh, you know, for the, 
you know, we, we noted last week she, she once again landed in favor on the debate stage of, uh, of Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan, which would ban private insurance. She raised her hand when she was asked if she supported that. And the next day, she pulled back from that again. Senator, another defining moment in the debate was when every candidate was asked to raise their hand if they would abolish private insurance. In that moment, you raised your hand. But afterwards, your campaign says, actually, that's not your position. So what is your position on private insurance? I am supportive of Medicare for All, and under a Medicare for All policy, private insurance would certainly exist, and uh, for supplemental um, coverage. You know, this is, she's been going back and forth on this issue. She's tripped over it several times. Uh, why does this keep happening? And can you get to where she wants to go if she doesn't clean that kind of stuff up? Yeah, and there's a time when you get enough of it, you can't clean it up. I mean, that video of her raising her hand with the other candidates is going to be around forever. and It's going to get very famous in the general election if she's a nominee. So, you know, with as you said in an early one of our uh, uh, episodes, when she's got a line, she can deliver it well. But most of this business is being good on your feet in the moment out there on the campaign trail under the endless scrutiny of the media. And she doesn't have what musicians would say is the ability to kind of improvise and vamp a little bit. She stumbles in and tries to create her own definition now of what, what she did. And that, in this era of authenticity and the news cycles we're under now, is deadly. So that's the missing tool in her toolbox. And we'll see over the summer she gets a lot better at it. If not, it's going to get her. And uh, all the great debate moments in the world cannot make up for bad daily performances where you keep tripping into – into potholes like this. I'll tell you what's going to be really interesting is what the pairings are in the debate. Who's going to be yep. in what heat? Uh, you know, uh, Elizabeth Warren was alone uh, among the top contenders in the first debate, but likely she's going to be mixed in with some of these others here. And I'm interested to see her and Kamala Harris on the same debate stage and whether they uh, get into it all over... Uh, substance over some of these. I, I, I think they're headed for some sort of collision here. No, I totally agree. And the media will be obsessed with it. So any debate producer worth a damn, in fact, mm -hmm. if they don't do this, they ought to be replaced, has to put them next to each other on stage. Uh, while all this is going on, uh, we have this other issue of the president pushing this census question. Uh, of whether you are a citizen, the Supreme Court disallowed it, uh, or or uh, back to lower court and disallowing it, uh, and now he's coming back at it, and the Justice Department has changed its lawyers, and they're pushing forward on it. And the whole point of this was whether this was is is politically motivated to rig the count. There were some consultant reports uh, to uh, to the Commerce Department that suggested that. Um, and so the fight goes on. He may lose it. But, you know, I think one of the things people are missing, I mean, I, I think that the goal is to try and intimidate people into not answering uh, the census. But uh, from a political issue, from a political standpoint, isn't this a strategically smart fight for Trump and his base? Yeah, I think, in you know, to the extent you're thinking like Trump would— Everything to him is a Republican primary. So every time he can move the debate back to immigration, and again, some of these early primary uh, moments have helped him do that, 
he's doing okay. Now there's a bigger question of he's doing okay among the 41% who would vote for a you know, bag of cement with a T on it. Some would argue they have. Does it expand and get him into places he needs to grow a bit because the demography of the election is changing? But in terms of playing the hit record to his folks, it's it's more food for him. Now, but, but here's, of the, course but here's it's the thing. And horrendous. I, I wondered about this. And um, uh, we looked up uh, some of the polling on this. And so you ask the simple question, do you think the federal government should or should not ask people whether they are American citizens as part of the 2020 uh, census, it comes off, uh, you know, uh, YouGov uh, said 53-32, uh, The Hill did a poll, 60%, uh, and uh, Harvard-Harris uh, did a poll that said 67% of registered voters, uh, and that included 63% of independents, 52% of Democrats, 55% of Hispanic voters. So my guess is that he is fine with people lighting their hair on fire about this, uh, that he's going to fight and probably lose, uh, but he likes the fight. Yeah, yeah, particularly on his music. And every day he can fill up cable TV of a squabble about even a process thing like this that normally people don't care that much about, but something that pushes the debate into his world, he'll be happy. And that seems to be his core skill. And, you know, Bannon used to write all the time about how it was always part of the Trump plan to put out this incendiary stuff that both pleased his voters and lured the other side's voters into a debate on issues they thought they profited from. So here's another one. Now, one person who's going to be watching the census is Mitch McConnell. He's looking at a race, and there's a pretty strong candidate getting in. Yeah, today, Amy McGrath, the former Air Force uh, fighter pilot uh, who lost a race for Congress in 2018 but was a highly touted candidate, has jumped in. Here's a little bit of her announcement video. Well, it started with this man who was elected a lifetime ago and who has, bit by bit, year by year, turned Washington into something we all despise, where dysfunction and chaos are political weapons, where budgets and healthcare and the Supreme Court are held hostage. So to me, Mike, that is a great message for a national Democratic audience. I think she's going to raise a boatload of money because of the feelings that McConnell has stirred in Democrats. What about Kentucky? Is that a message that's going to sell in Kentucky? Well, that's the question. She could be the new Beto, which is national fundraising sensation against the boogeyman Mitch McConnell. But he's had tough races in Kentucky time and time again. He is a master politician and strategist. And he has deep roots in the state. I think they're going at him the smart way, which is everything you don't like about politics. But they will define her now, and I think they've already got a video up, as somebody out of touch of Kentucky values, which is how they beat earlier Democratic challengers. So being the national darling can have a real downside on the ground, and we'll see how she does. But welcome to the briar patch. Mitch is very cagey. Well, one guy we know who's going to be on top of all of this with his buddies at Pod Save America is my old friend John Favreau, who's joining us now from Los Angeles. Favs, good to hear from you, brother. And you know my buddy, uh, Mike Murphy. Hey, man. How I you doing? I do. Uh, I'm good. I'm a, I'm a big fan of this podcast. Mike, I was a fan of Radio Free GOP, so <laughs> I'm, I'm excited to be here. So oh, thank you. You can, uh, you, you're out there on the left coast. Of course, Murphy is too, but he's there with kind of a permanent visa of some I'm sort. I'm undercover. Yeah. Bringing but, it down from the inside. <laughs> 
But uh, just one, just give me 30 seconds on, on Steyer. Why? <laughs> Why? What's he doing? I don't know. I mean, I look, I, I hate to accuse him of uh, sort of conducting a, a vanity project here, <laughs> but, um, you know, he, he's got a lot of money, right? Like, I watched the ad this morning. It's a decent message in the ad. I mean, he's sort of trying to... It, it sounded a lot like an Elizabeth Warren, Bernie Sanders message, almost. Um, but the question except is... Except from a billionaire. Except from a billionaire, right. And it's like, so why do you think... What do you think's missing? I mean, I always wonder every time someone runs for president, what do you see missing in the field that made you think, okay, I have to step in because something's missing? And from his message... You would one would think, okay, well, that's Elizabeth Warren's message. That's Bernie Sanders' message. Like, why do we need Tom Steyer involved in this too? And uh, you know, from his perspective, maybe he thinks, well, he's got a, a whole bunch of money, and maybe right. he—I don't know—and and you know, he can he can run a whole bunch of ads and compete with Trump and the Republicans that way. But I, I honestly don't know. It does. I watched that video, and it it was driving me crazy because he was doing the Warren message in his perfect boardroom shirt in the well-lit right. antique barn that had a little bit of a Unabomber vibe to me. And it just seems so forced, which is often the Steyer problem. You know, he has to be in all the ads, and there's just not a good job person fit for him, I think, as a candidate. Or he would have run for something else and, you know, kind of earned his spurs. So I, it feels like vanity. Well, I questioned earlier— uh, in the last year and a half, why he was the star of all his impeachment ads, and maybe now this, we know this is the answer. Yeah, <laughs> so let's talk about the overall race and where you think things are at right now. Yeah, I mean, we did another uh, post debate poll with uh, Change Research that we're going to uh, talk about on Thursday and release on Thursday, but it does look like we have sort of a a four way tie for first here, um, and. I don't know what you guys think, but I, I'm sort of surprised how much the first uh, two debates actually shook up the race. I mean, it looks like, you know, it did put a little dent in, in Biden's standing. And I think, although Kamala has probably gained more than Biden lost, though, it, you know, it seems like her new support is still soft for now. Yeah. So people are still trying to take take measure of her. Um, but it is interesting that we sort of have these four people at the top of the at the top of the heap right now and of course you can't uh count out Pete Buttigieg who just raised uh an absurd amount of money in the in the second quarter um and so i sort of wonder if we're going to have a couple months now where you have these four candidates and, and maybe Pete just sort of bunched together at the top and maybe the debates are the way that people break out of the pack um yeah. and maybe they're more important than than ever i don't know yeah, well, it certainly seems to have had. You know, first of all, the audiences were huge, and we know the interest in the race uh, is huge among uh, among Democrats. Uh, I think you know we've got another debate coming in, th- another set of debates coming in three weeks. It'll be interesting to see how these candidates are treated, the four uh, at the top, by their colleagues on stage, and how they how they behave toward, or the five on top, how they behave toward each other. You know, I I think that um, Kamala gained uh, tremendously from this last debate. Um, I think she'll probably find herself, you you know how it is in this business, the bar gets raised and the tests get harder. She'll probably get tested a little more. Uh, The question is, is I'm wondering who who of her colleagues actually tests her. 
um, you know, because uh, you, you wonder if someone's going to sort of dig into her record as a prosecutor. It's not really fertile territory for Joe Biden yeah, exactly. <laughs> to, to dig in there. And I don't think Pete Buttigieg would go there. It doesn't seem like it's in Elizabeth Warren's character to go there. So I'm, I sort of wonder if it's maybe one of the... Um, one of the one to two percenters um, that uh, that takes a shot because I think the lesson, if you watch the last two debates, your lesson as a candidate is okay. Well, I get noticed right. if I go exactly. after someone and take a shot. Yeah. I mean, and yeah. there's room for somebody to go be the hey, wait a minute on some of this stuff that could be so problematical in the general election. I, I do think though that Biden, even if his instincts aren't to attack anybody, generic Joe is not enough anymore. He's got to be dramatically improved and winning a moment of conflict would do it for him. And and Pete's got to fight his way into the race a bit. So there's a lot of kind of dry kindling there. And and I think somebody may take a poke at her, but they better be resolute because she's good on her feet and can quickly put people on defensive uh, if they don't do it just right. But she is an inviting target. So let me ask you this. The um, three things that came screaming out of the last debate one of them was uh, the uh, Castro's attack on on Beto, who's a candidate I know you know well and have been mm-hmm. uh, supportive of, uh, on this issue of decriminalizing border crossings. The next night, I mean, uh, Castro scored on that. Um, the next night, everyone raised their hand uh, on that question, uh, also on uh, providing health uh, uh, services or, or allowing undocumented workers to join uh, uh, federal health programs. Um, and then there was the Medicare for All in which uh, four of the candidates raised their hand saying that they would do away with um, do away with private insurance. You have any worries about this? I mean, I, I, you, you speak yeah. uh, solidly for the left, but yeah, I mean, Look, I, I count myself as pretty progressive, and um, I. But here's my thing: I, I think there is an argument that you can make for Medicare for all. Um, there's an argument you can make for uh, decriminalizing border crossings and uh, you know providing health insurance to undocumented immigrants that could be more politically palatable, at least, maybe not to everyone, but at least um, somewhat political pa- politically palatable. And I didn't hear anyone really make it. That's my problem. Like, I don't think that any of these candidates who are sort of jumping on, on these positions that are a little farther to the left are making compelling cases for them that would be appealing to a broader audience, right? Like, I mean, if I was Bernie Sanders or anyone who's supporting Medicare for All, I would at least say, well, one good thing about Medicare for All is, I mean, people are talking about abolishing private health insurance, but if you like your doctor, (laughs) you can actually keep your doctor because all the doctors in the whole country are going to be under a single network. So you don't have to worry about losing the doctor that you you really like. But no one is is even bothering to try to make these politically, more politically effective arguments, and and that does worry me. Part of the problem is that when you get these, everybody raised their hand, yes or no mm-hmm. questions, they don't exactly invite elaboration. And so everybody just jumps in the canoe, you know? Yeah, they're yeah. Total I was, trap. I was... If I had a candidate, I'd weld their hands to their belt just to play it safe. I got a question <laughs> for you guys, because I'm a conservative, so you can decode this for me. Why sure. does this election have to be a test on some pretty 
aggressive or at least pretty passionate progressive policies. Doesn't that add risk to the general election or are the incentives in the primary so strong people just can't avoid going there? I think there is a narrative that came out of 2016, which is that Democrats don't do well enough or we didn't win or whatever else because we didn't have the courage to say what we believed and talk up, you know, and advocate for the positions that we believe in. And look, I think there is some truth to the fact that in, in the past, Democrats have sort of shied away. You know, I mean, we ran in 08. Part, part of our campaign was sort of posited against uh, Clinton era triangulation and calculation. And, you know, we made that argument. But I think there's a balance to everything, right? Like there, it is true that Democrats are sometimes afraid to say what they believe and fight for what they believe in. And that's been true in the past. But I also don't think that means that you've um, you then forget about politics and you think that Trump has broken all the rules of politics and you don't have to worry about politics anymore. You don't have to worry about what voters think right. about anymore. Like I do think there's an outer limit to this. Yeah. One thing I would point out about 2008 is, well, what you say is true. It's also true that uh, Barack Obama did not uh, did not endorse uh, the indiv- individual mandate, for example. Right. In the primary, there right. are several issues on which he was uh, not to on the on the left of the party. John Edwards, even Hillary Clinton, were to the left uh, of him. And you know, maybe he got a bit of a pass uh, because he was uh, an anti-war candidate. He was an African American candidate, but he also positioned himself well to win a general election. And yeah. w- winning is pretty important here, it seems to me. Yeah, so. historically well, <laughs> important. What, yeah, well, and what you know, what I'm concerned about is, and, and my specific concern with Castro's proposal is, you can achieve what Castro wants to achieve through repealing uh, 1325 through executive order as uh, whoever the next Democratic president is, right? On day one, you could end family separations. You could end sort of mass deportations and mass detention. And then you could work on comprehensive immigration reform, which is obviously, um, you know, broadly popular, at least with the electorate. So it's proposing something that you can get done on your own, but now we have this whole issue around it. Now it's going to be this sort of like politically charged issue. I don't quite understand, even from a policy standpoint, why you needed to propose this rather than just say, yeah, as president, I'm going to take a bunch of executive actions to end all of Donald Trump's worst immigration policies. Well, and it also, it also plays into, you know, it clearly plays into the, the, the open borders, uh, you know, meme of, of, of Trump and the Republicans. I don't know why the answer wouldn't be... Uh, the problem isn't the law. The problem is the president. And what we yes. need to do is change presidents and restore uh, thoughtful policy uh, on immigration. Uh, you know, or, uh, now, let me ask you a question on this. The attack was on Beto. Um, mm-hmm. why, why, did he, why did he not defend his position or explain his position uh, in these kinds of terms? Uh, it's a great question. <laughs> I mean, here's the thing. Like, like I don't know why Beto wasn't – I imagine he was ready. I think he was ready um, That because, you know, Castro sort of came at him um, through some interview maybe like a week before the debate on this very issue. And I think on the substance, Beto originally did get it. A, a bit wrong. And he said, oh, well, this is for, you know, we got to be able to get traffickers and smugglers, but there are laws for traffickers and smugglers. And so I'm not sure why 
his team or he, he wasn't corrected on the policy before the debate because his original answer was wrong on that. But he could have given, given a pretty effective answer for why you don't want to completely um, take that tool away from enforcement because – you know, one argument for uh, having 1325 on the books is that when someone comes right over the border, you can then detain that person. And uh, if you don't have that tool, you basically give them a ticket and say, show up at your deportation hearing. And by the way, that's not going to be until, you know, six months or a year from now because we have this backlog. Mm -hmm. And so it's not technically open borders at all. It's not. But you can make the case that without this tool, you're going to have a lot of people coming over the border and believing, okay, once I can just get past and escape my deportation hearing, then um, I don't have to, you know, I'm home free. And, you know, someone could argue that that is open borders. It just, you know, it's someone might. It's Mm -hmm. it's just ringing my bell as a a guy who's worked a lot of those Great Lakes states. I remember to my old friend Lamar Alexander when he ran for president in 95, he would always be trapped in the Iowa caucus. Oh, I have a very simple position on life issues. Let me take half an hour to explain it. <laughs> and, you know, this is, a, this is a good way to spend the general election campaign on the wrong 20-yard line uh, with these complicated immigration issues that are just a topic where Trump sound bites are going to be better in not only Trump counties, it might get them some of the suburbs back. So I, I know primaries are incentivized to primary voters, but boy, it's running even more wild at this early stage than I thought it would. So what about Beto? Uh, where, where do you feel he is now? And you, you rightly chastised me because I said that Castro had uh, laid a, a mortal blow on him. And yeah. this, is, this is way early to uh, talk about mortality. But, um, but clearly, he needed a good debate. He didn't get one. Um, where does this go? Yeah, I mean— my my issue with you saying that it was Castro that landed the the mortal blow is I don't think that the I mean the exchange with Castro got all the news and got all the attention but I think Beto's bigger problem in that debate is he did not he still did not come up with or at least express a coherent rationale for his candidacy right mm-hmm. like this is you in a field uh, this talented this diverse this big you have to be very sure exactly why you should be president and not the other people on that stage, what you have to offer that they don't. And that doesn't mean that you have to start going after all the other candidates all the time, but implicitly in your argument for yourself, it has to be, okay, well, this is why I should be president and not everyone else. This is why I'm the best to face Donald Trump and not everyone else. And he didn't do that in any, I mean, he hasn't really done that too well thus far on the campaign. And he certainly didn't do that on the debate stage. I think he treated, I mean, actually, he sort of treated some of these questions almost like Obama used to when he was having a bad debate, which is, all right, I'm hearing the question and now I'm just going to answer it like someone asked me on the street. Yes. <laughs> you know, yeah. and I'm going to sort of yeah. explain all the policy and I'm going to try, you know, he tried to sort of be inspirational and give sort of like these set piece mini speeches. Um, and I think that doesn't help you in a, in a debate stage. It's also, that crowded in that you're, you're totally right about all of that. And there's also the theatrics of these debates. If someone comes directly at you, you need yeah. to respond in some way. You can't sort of wilt. You need to be aggressive. Anything. Because, yeah, it's yeah that's the test. other, you know, so that that's would, the other problem is he's not aggressive enough. He wasn't aggressive enough that night. And like, even if the moderator said, okay, well, that's enough time. You get attacked like that, you just got to say, well, screw you, I'm jumping in. I was just attacked. And, you know, uh, let me tell you something about TV that you know, which is um, if you, if there's something good going on, they're not going to say, hey, 
uh, move on in the ear of the moderators. They're going to say, this is good TV. I mean, I think Castro overstayed his welcome on that whole exchange, but they liked it. And the same with what happened the next night with uh, Harris and Biden, because it was dramatic. And yep. so, you know, you've got to You've got to play to the moment. Before we uh, let you go, uh, there was a piece you probably saw today uh, on Axios about uh, Trump resistance media rising. They cited you guys as kind of the vanguard uh, mm-hmm. of all of this. But do you see uh, do you see this emerging? Is there a, a sort of counter to the uh, to the right wing media? conglomerate that is out there that will have a meaningful impact on uh, on the election uh, we're trying our best to build the empire out here uh, <laughs> <laughs> you're doing pretty well the other item they had was about your per ticket price uh for your concert tour of uh of pod save america things so from what i from where i'm sitting you're doing pretty well but you <laughs> you guys are but you guys are you've been killing it for a long time and you're doing really well the question is are you know there are other groups uh uh that were mentioned in this piece yeah. uh that are growing uh, uh front I mean, page live and political voices network and um, yeah, I haven't. I hadn't heard of any of them except for acronym, um, which th- they're excellent. Um, look, I love it would kill me for saying this, but I want more crooked medias, right? Like, I, I think there should be an entire. <laughs> well, well, screw him. Ecos- he was late anyway, so right. right for exactly. Your, uh, I, I think there should be an entire ecosystem on the left because you know it's. I mean, the right's got Fox, obviously, but they've got all these YouTube stars. You know, Ben Shapiro's gotten his podcast. I mean, there is a giant, giant network on the right, and we don't have anything like that. There's Crooked Media, and there's, you know, the Young Turks are out there, too. They've been at it for a while. Um, but there's not there's not a big infrastructure like there is on the right, and I don't count I don't count MSNBC among that because you have a couple of liberal hosts on in primetime, but that's not the whole network. And so, yeah, guys, I, I think... No, you guys do pretty well with the legacy media, though. You know, I, I pick up my New York Times every day looking for a good right-wing editorial, and I'm still looking. But the point yeah, is taken although, that I think conservatives have done a pretty good job in kind of the non-traditional media. But you're looking pretty competitive now to me. Yeah, I mean, the, the problem is it's like we're pulling our hair out reading the New York Times and some of the editorials there just as much as the right is. So it's not even, it's you know, I mean, I don't think I don't think there's a ton of Republicans who are watching Fox and there's some uh, liberal columnist on there making a point that they're yelling at, right? Like they, they, <laughs> they do it, they do it much better than we do. Well, look, the one thing that you can feel good about is that you have hair to pull out. So I admire you for that. <laughs> John yeah, Favreau. Both. It's always great to talk to you, brother. I'm looking across the room behind my my desk at uh, at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago is a photo that was taken for GQ or some some magazine with all of the presidential speechwriters looking uh, like the cast of some British drama, um, <laughs> and uh, I, I keep it there in a place of honor because. That was one of the best experiences of my life working with you guys. So it's always well, good the, to uh, talk to you. The best part of our day in the White House was uh, uh, trudging into your office and we get to sit down and talk politics and message for an hour. So I, uh, I will always remember that and, and enjoyed it very much. Glad to do it again. Talk to you soon. All right. Thanks for having me, guys. Bye. Thanks yeah. for coming on. 
Okay, Axe, it's time for Mailbag, and Julie writes us, Now that Mayor Pete has raised this insane amount of money, though I'd argue useful amount of money, admittedly $25 of which was from me, what should he do with it? How does he shift his campaign to start moving up in the polls? You know, you are right in the sense that $25 million was a a, a mind-boggling number uh, for Mayor Pete. Uh, you've got a guy who's at 4% in the polls right now. And uh, it's really unprecedented to see someone generate this kind of uh, of money. Um, and so that's all to the good for him. The question is what you do with it. Because what happened is his campaign got way out uh, ahead of itself in terms of its momentum, largely on the basis of his own performances. And he had virtually no organization in the early states. Uh, they announced that they just hired 30 more people in Iowa today, but they're really playing catch up in these early states. And I would say the most important thing that they can do is build up those uh, early state organizations, and particularly in Iowa, because from where I sit, if if Pete uh, doesn't pull off um, a, a major outcome in Iowa, and I think winning may be it. Um, his campaign could uh, stall early, uh, so he needs to do well in Iowa. This money will help him uh, build that organization, and also in New Hampshire, where I think he could also do well if he does well in Iowa, in South Carolina, in uh, Nevada, and you always have to you have to worry about California now, which starts voting the day of the Iowa caucuses. So. Um, this money is important, and it's important optically to keep him uh, in the mix because he has fallen a bit in the in this last round of polling post debate, and uh, post his struggles around uh, some of the uh, racial issues in South Bend, and so he he uh, he has instant credibility. Uh, because of the money that he's raised here. Yeah, he's had hype. He now has money. And what he needs is early state Iowa and New Hampshire votes. The good news is he's elephant hunting. I mean, maybe later. He's large, easy to find donkey hunting because he knows what he needs. He has to get out of the white college educated people with high SAT scores. And he's going to have a little competition from Steyer, who's going to kind of come sliding in with some of that same Brainiac stuff. So Pretty simple mission strategically, hard to go do every day, and the dollars will help him go try to do it. I actually think uh, he already has competition for that vote. I think Elizabeth Warren's doing very well with college-educated voters. Sure. Uh, uh, Kamala took a big leap with college-educated voters uh, after the debate. So he's being squeezed there. And I think uh, for him, uh, one of the issues is, does Biden sustain his support or does he unravel? If, if he unravels, is there a spot in that sort of center-left world uh, where uh, – Pete can grab some of what is lost uh, to uh, to Biden. So, yeah, that's the bet um, but, they've but, got but to be making. I has, think that's their path. I, well, you some of these questions may be answered uh, uh, this weekend. Uh, my Axe Files TV show on CNN airs at seven p.m. Eastern, and I spent an hour with Mayor Pete uh, in South Bend uh, this week. Uh, and so I hope everybody will tune in because we did talk about some of these very issues. So now uh, let me <laughs> That ask, is a good plug, by the way. I will yeah, be tuning in. I'm yeah. uh, looking forward. I, I, uh, I thought that was subtle, but, but – but, <laughs> You should have worked well, in stamps.com and then it would have been perfect. <laughs> but, uh, uh, so Stephen 
asks, is there any guarantee that Trump will participate in the presidential debates? I know he never shies from the spotlight, but I don't know if he'll be looking forward to two hours of Kamala Harris's cross-examination. So Stephen already knows how the primaries are going to turn out. He's way ahead of everybody here. Yeah, this is fascinating because there is an instance or two in American history. You know, we all assume these debates are must-dos. Not necessarily. Nixon passed in 72. So Trump may be tempted to pass. On the other hand, the idea of somebody else having the spotlight on national television in a huge mega event like that will drive Trump crazy if he's not there. So this is one of the great Trump blows up the rule book. How do you know? How do you predict things? But I actually think there is a chance he'll at least say he's not going to participate in the big debates in the fall, and then we'll see what he does. If I had to bet, I'd say he will. But th- this is there's more risk now than in any time, I think, in recent history that the president may indeed not debate. Well, I mean, if you look at his, his – ha- I mean, customs, norms, these are of no concern to him. He will right. do what he thinks is in his own best interest. And if he thinks he's at risk in these debates, he's just not going to debate. And I don't think he's going to care if the League of Women Voters is in a state of high dudgeon or the Washington establishment about his not uh, debating. So, you know, we're talking about what is this candidate going to look like on a debate stage with Donald Trump. On the other hand, there is the fact that the man is uh, has a pretty substantial ego. He thinks <laughs> he's good at this stuff. And I don't think he wants to read commentary that he turned and uh, turned tail and ran. Uh, right. So, uh, you know, we'll see. But it is definitely, Stephen, an open question as to whether we'll even see Donald Trump on that debate stage. Hey, we've gotten a ton of really great questions uh, from you guys, and we hope you'll keep uh, sending them our way at uh, at hacksontap at gmail.com. That's hacksontap at gmail.com. And I should uh, say we read them all. We just can't fit them all on the air. But thank you for doing it and keep them coming. So, X. Last call. I'm going to do a quick one about Justin Amash, the Republican congressman from Michigan who left the party and is now speculating that he might run for president as an independent. Now, generally, and I'm curious what you think, I'm of the theory that having multiple anti-Trump candidates is good for Trump. You split the fire the Trump vote. Though I can see a scenario where Amash runs only in Michigan and maybe Wisconsin as a real libertarian real constitutional conservative, which is who he is. He was always kind of a Rand Paul-esque guy in the Republican caucus to begin with. And running on that ideological campaign, that'll scare the hell out of a lot of people, but may resonate enough to find him 20, 25,000 votes in those states that were so close before could actually make a difference. It'll be interesting to see. Yeah, my question is whether these suburban voters who trended uh, Democrat in 2018 and in, in these states, are, is, are there a handful of these voters who would hold their nose and vote uh, Democrat uh, for president, uh, even if they didn't like the Democrat nominee, if the choice was Trump, but if they had a, th- a third party, they go there. I, and and I've, I've said from the beginning, I don't think Trump can get to 50% in these battleground states. Uh, but if you have other candidates on the ballot and the threshold gets lower, um, you know, he may profit right. uh, from that. So, um, but we'll see. Yeah, generically, I'm with you. Just his flavor of conservative might take 10, 20,000 Trump votes if he does it, and I doubt he will. So, uh, as we speak, they're arguing a case in New Orleans about whether or not the uh, 
Obamacare will survive. And it's being propagated in part by a suit that uh, the Trump administration has joined. And they may be the, the dog that catches the car if the courts rule in their favor. I think that it would be a disaster uh, for Trump and the Republican Party. They already got singed in 2018 to make this the issue in 2020, and that's when these rulings are likely to culminate. Uh, If Obamacare is set aside, Trump uh, may take one more step toward being set aside himself, in my view. Yeah, look, we learned the lesson in 16 when you're not debating the big word Obamacare, but you're debating, in that case, pre-existing conditions being taken away. The politics are awful. So it'll be a jump ball, I think, between the Republicans playing defense on people losing stuff they like, elements of Obamacare, versus whether the Democratic uh, progressive ideas that are popping through in the debates, like health care for people here illegally, are the health care thing. So it, it could be quite a fight, and this is trouble for the Republicans if that judge does indeed repeal it politically. So thank you all. We're going to wrap it up now. And I want to do my normal reminder to please rate us, comment, go on iTunes or any podcast platform. It really helps us because it gets that tricky, tricky black box at Apple to spread the podcast around so more people can see it, hear about it, and give us a lesson and see if they like. You can also email the podcast on most of these places to your friends, see if they like it too. We really appreciate your ears and your interest. And thanks again for listening. Talk to you next week. Take care.